So good afternoon, St. Paul's. Uh, today is the second in our series on Paul's letter to the Colossians, as Keith was saying. Last week we talked about uh, how Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae because he had heard that they were starting to drift from the original message that they had heard and received. And we talked about how this tendency to drift is something that's common to all of us. All of us have this tendency, if we're not really expending any effort, to start to drift away from the truths that we've heard, uh, both in, our, in our, what we affirm and in our behavior. Uh, and we need regular reminders about who Christ is and what he's done in order to keep from drifting. So Paul wrote this letter to counteract the drifting that was going on in Colossae. And the first thing that he reminded them of is the truth that Jesus Christ is supreme. The truth that there is no other authority that is higher than him. And uh, he didn't stop there, but he also went on to say that not only is Jesus Christ supreme, but he's also reconciling. He's a, he's a king who is not only the greatest authority, but also a king who desires to reconcile us to himself, to be in relationship with us, and to make peace. So in the passages that we're looking at this week, Paul's going to continue to try to counteract the drift in the church in Colossae. It's okay? There we go. Okay. Thanks, Caleb. Uh, But before we get into the text, I want to talk a little bit about Michael Phelps. I know that sounds a little bit random. Uh, but the reason's going to become clear in a moment. So, uh, Michael Phelps, one of the greatest athletes of our time. Uh, he uh, is a, a swimmer. He holds 39 world records, and he's won 18 Olympic gold medals. No small feat. Uh, but, of course, those accomplishments did not happen by accident. Michael Phelps submitted to himself to a very rigorous training routine. And according to an article I found online, it said that he would train five to six hours a day, six days a week, and at the peak of his training, he would be swimming about 50 miles a week. So that's a lot. Now, you might say, well, I work more than six hours a day, so I don't know if I'm that impressed. Um, And if you're thinking that way, well, one thing to keep in mind is that Michael Phelps had to consume an amazing amount of food every day in order to be able to do what he was doing. So I think one of the reasons that the hours are as low as they are is because he needed the rest of the time to eat. (laughs) And he was consuming at peak training time about 12,000 calories a day. Now, you're supposed to eat about 2,500 calories a day. Um, So according to this article, they said that uh, for breakfast, Phelps would eat three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise. And we could stop there. I'd be like, okay, I can't even handle that. You know, three, three fried egg sandwiches. But that's just the start. Then he drinks two cups of coffee, probably, you know, to take a, take a little break. Uh, and then he consumes a five-egg omelet, a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast with powdered sugar, and three chocolate chip pancakes. Um, that's just breakfast. Then for lunch, Phelps eats a pound of pasta and two large ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread with mayo. He then drinks about 1,000 calories worth of energy drinks. And then for dinner, he eats another pound of pasta and a full pizza 
followed by another 1,000 calories of energy drinks. Um, I've seen Jeremy eat close to that much (laughs) at a buffet, but, I mean, this is on a daily basis, so pretty amazing. Uh, And yet, despite eating all this, he was only 165 pounds, 6 foot 4. So he's very lean. Um, And what that tells you is that all this food that he's eating, he's he's burning it up. He's working that hard. So he's got incredible degree of intense dedication going on here. Now, Phelps is in a special class of athlete. He's an Olympic athlete. And Olympic athletes have actually been around for a long time. They were around during the time of uh, when Paul was writing. And uh, Paul uses a word uh, in his letter to the Colossians that alludes to this Olympic athleticism. And that word is the verb agonizomai. Um, Oh, originally I had it in Greek, but oh well, it doesn't matter. Um, So yeah, the word agonizomai, and agonizomai literally means to contend in the gymnastic games. Now, I don't know for sure if the athletes in Paul's day were as intense as Michael Phelps, but I'm sure they were the best of the best. They were Olympic athletes. And so when we look at today's passage, uh, and the word agonizomai appears, I want us to think of the dedication and intensity that we see demonstrated by an athlete like Michael Phelps. So the passage that we're looking at is Colossians 1, starting in verse 28. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the book. So you know, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, just keep them open. We're going to move here and there. Uh, but starting in, in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul writes, uh, We proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that verb, agonizomai, it shows up there and there. To this end I labor, agonizomai, with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me, I want you to know how much I am agonizomai for you. So Paul's saying, I'm laboring like a world-class athlete in the games, He's saying, I'm contending for your well-being with an intensity like Michael Phelps training for those gold medals. He's saying that he's struggling, he's expending effort, he's working hard. And Paul suggests that he wants this same kind of intensity in members of the church. He says a little earlier in verses 10 through 11, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And just want us to notice these words here, strengthened, endurance, patience. So Paul wants the church to be agonizomying along with him. All right. So Paul is struggling. He wants the church to struggle with him. He wants us to struggle with him. He wants us to put up a fight. He wants us to burn some calories. 
Now let me ask you a rhetorical question. How does it, how does it make you feel to hear that? For some of us, it's inspiring. It, it calls to our desire for purpose and adventure. Um, but for others of us, that struggle sounds kind of exhausting. Uh, we think, I don't know if I can keep up with that training program. I don't know if I want to. It sounds really hard. And today, the message I want to offer is geared more towards those of us who find the idea of the struggle exhausting. <laughs> towards those of us who find Paul's intensity a little overwhelming. And towards those of us who might not be feeling up for the battle. All right, so, excuse me. For many of us who might be feeling that way, the first thing I want us to realize is that whether we decide to live for Christ or we decide to live for something else entirely, life involves struggle. Life is hard. The Scottish theologian Ian McLaren once said, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I really like that line. I try to remember it, you know, just when I'm going around doing errands, running into people, that sort of thing. Because it's true. It doesn't matter who you are. Life is challenging. Every life has struggle. And the Bible depicts the world that we live in as a world that is under a curse caused by sin. And part of that curse is it makes it so that life is a struggle. Uh, In the story of Adam and Eve in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, uh, after sin enters the world, God says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. In other words, life is going to be hard. You're going to need to eat to survive, and getting food is going to be difficult. And work is not always going to be easy. Um, most of us today don't have to deal with literal thorns and thistles when we're trying to get our food, but we do have to deal with figurative ones. Um, If you're at work and you're working on a project on your computer and the computer crashes, that's a thorn. If uh, you're so tired that you can barely drag yourself out of bed in the morning to get to work, that's a thorn. If you're trying to do creative work and your mind is just completely dry, you've got no ideas at all, that's a thorn. And whatever job we're doing, we encounter those things. Life is hard. It's a struggle. And interestingly, uh, this fact is actually the starting point for the Buddhist religion. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that at all. I studied world religions when I was at UConn. And uh, in Buddhism, they have this idea of the four noble truths. And the first truth is life is dukkha. I think that's how you pronounce it. Basically, life is suffering. Life is struggle. And I think we can all agree that Struggle is part of life. Now, what I disagree with very much with Buddhism is their solution to, uh, to the problem of dukkha, of suffering, is to say you just need to stop desiring anything. Whereas in Christianity, we say the solution is to find your satisfaction in God. Uh, so very different approach. But the idea that living involves suffering and struggling is the same. So, Life involves struggle. There's no way around that. So the question is not whether we will struggle, but the question is, 
what are we going to struggle for, and where are we going to find our strength? And what I want us to take away from today, the big idea that I want to present, is that the Christian struggle is the easiest hard thing. The Christian struggle is the easiest hard thing. And what I mean by that is that following Jesus is hard, yes. Like the Olympian in training, it takes work and effort and determination. But at the same time, it is the best, the most rewarding, the most joyful struggle we can choose to engage in. And so what I'd like to do for the rest of today is to just talk about three reasons why I believe this statement is true, that the Christian struggle is the easiest hard thing. And with each of these reasons, I hope you can see that when you hear them, yeah, there's something hard about that, but there's something easy about it too. So the first one, first reason that the Christian struggle is the easiest hard thing is because the Christian struggle calls us to turn from sin. So uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Colossians, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And then moving on to verse 8, he says, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, it takes a lot of effort to turn from these things, doesn't it? It takes some agonitsumai effort. Because in our natural state, if we don't expend any effort, the tendency is to drift towards things like greed, lust, anger, rage. So, in some sense, the easiest thing is to not put sin to death, right? The easiest thing is just to take the path of least resistance and move towards sin. However, if we allow our lives to be characterized by sin, that's not an easy way to live, either. So, for example, Paul says we need to rid ourselves of anger. Now, if you've been wronged, it's very hard not to be angry, right? Sure. I, it, when, we're, when we've been wronged, our tendency is to want to indulge that anger, to uh, dwell in it, to, to react, um, And the path of least resistance is to do that. But if we allow ourselves to be angry, does that increase our joy? Does that make us happier? No. It's easy to allow ourselves to be angry, but it is not easy to live an angry life. The same is true of greed. So it's hard to reject greedy impulses, to say, no, I'm not going to obsess over money and material possessions. But what's even harder is to live a life that's characterized by greed. Because when you're greedy, you're never satisfied. You never know what it feels like to be content. And if you're greedy, I guarantee that your relationships are going to suffer. Because it's very hard to have a meaningful, close relationship with a greedy person. Most of us probably remember Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. Uh, He's a great example of this. Scrooge was a greedy man, or duck, depending on the version that you're familiar with. He clung to his wealth and refused to share it. And did he have any meaningful relationships? Did he have any friends? Was he happy? If you remember the story, you know the answer to all those questions. No. And it isn't until the end of the story, when he learns how to be generous, that he actually experiences real joy. So God's laws, though they are hard, they aren't aren't there to make our lives difficult. They're there to help us flourish. 
They're there to bring peace. It is hard to put sin to death, but it, in a sense, it's even harder not to. And that's why the Christian struggle is the easiest hard thing. Second reason why the Christian struggle is the easiest hard thing is because it involves giving up the idea that we can earn God's favor. See, our natural tendency is to think that if we succeed in turning from sin enough, then God's going to have to accept us. But what our faith teaches is that we can't turn from sin enough in order to earn right standing with God. God's standard's too high, and our ability is too low. So it's not what we do that saves us from our sin, but it's what Jesus did for us. In chapter 1, Colossians, verses 21 through 23, Paul reminds the Colossians, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now you have reconciled yourselves by your good behavior through your own effort in order to present yourselves as holy in his sight. Right? Just checking to see if anyone's listening. Now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So, just checking to see if you guys are paying attention. (laughs) What reconciles us to God? It's not our good behavior. It's not our own efforts. Even agonizomai-level effort. What reconciles us to God is Jesus Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross. There's something about that action that makes it possible for God to see us as holy and blameless in his sight. Now, if it's hard for you to understand why is it that Jesus dying would do that, it's okay. You don't have to understand everything about it. Just like you don't have to understand how the circuitry in your laptop works in order to type something up. You know, you don't have to know all of it. You just have to know and put your faith in the idea that I can't do this, but Jesus, through his efforts, has done it for me. Now, the idea that uh, part of the Christian struggle is, uh, is this uh, ability to let go of um, our sense that we can earn God's favor, that's difficult for two reasons. And the main reason is because it offends our pride. Uh, as human beings, we have a tendency to be prideful. And because of that, we don't like to admit that we need Jesus' sacrifice in order to be saved from our sin. I can think of one really clear example of this. Back when I worked in campus ministry, I used to go to this group called the Yukon Freethinkers. And it was a group comprised mainly of atheists. And I got to know this one student very well, and we had a lot of conversations about faith. He was an atheist, but he wanted to know more. And uh, at some point he said, so what would I have to do to become a Christian? And I told him, well, you know, really, there isn't a lot that you have to do. Really, what you need to understand is that you're a sinner and that you need the grace of God and that Jesus Christ died in order to save you from your sin. And you just you need to receive that gift that he's offering you. And uh, my friend said, I'll never forget it. He said, I can never do that because uh, I'm too proud to accept any help from God or to admit that I need God, God's help. I just I can't do that. And uh, I thought that was a sad answer, but I thought it was a very honest one. And uh, I think it's a, it's a reflection of the fact that we are prideful, 
And uh, it is a struggle to admit that we need God's help. And the second reason that this idea is part of the Christian struggle is because it's an idea that always needs to be guarded because it's always under assault. It was under assault in the Colossian church. That's why Paul wrote this letter, and it still ends up under assault today. And what I mean by it being under assault is that there were people who were claiming that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. There were people who did it then, and there are people who do it now. And when Paul talks about struggling, about agonizomying for the faith, he's talking about struggling to preserve this idea from the constant assaults against it. So the idea that we can't earn God's favor is hard for those reasons. But it's also the easiest thing. Because the idea says that our salvation is a gift. You know, we don't have to earn it. What, what could be easier than that? That might offend our pride a little bit. And it might be a hard idea to protect and preserve. But it's the easiest hard thing. And then finally... A third reason that the Christian struggle is the easiest hard thing is because the Christian struggle isn't done in our own strength. You might have caught this earlier, but when Paul talks about his struggling, about his agonizomying, he he expresses it in a really interesting way. Looking back at chapter 1, 28-29, we proclaim Christ admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So notice that. Struggling with all his energy. Not my energy, but struggling with all his energy. Paul was working hard, but he wasn't doing it on his own. The energy came from God. So going back to the the, uh, Michael Phelps metaphor, uh, Michael, Michael Phelps, right, I'm sorry, uh, Paul, Paul was swimming, Paul may have been swimming, metaphorically speaking, 50 miles a day, but God was the one who was preparing those enormous meals for him. Uh, Paul was good about consuming and using the energy that God was providing him, but it was still God that was giving him the energy. And when we choose to enter into the struggle of the Christian life, God provides us with the food that we need to handle that struggle. He gives us the energy, and we can count on him for it. And that energy comes in all kinds of ways. It comes through scripture. It comes through music. It comes through the prayers of friends and family. It comes through community. It comes through small groups. Uh, It even comes through the beauty of nature. But what he does is he sets the table for us. And he assures us that that table is going to have all the food on it that we need to do everything that he's calling us to do. Swimming 50 miles a week, That's hard, it takes effort, but with enough food and training, it is possible. And the same is true with the things that God calls us to do. The Christian struggle is hard, it takes work, but it's possible because God gives us what we need to do it. And not only is it possible, but it's the easiest hard thing. Because remember, life is going to be hard no matter what. No matter what, it's going to be a struggle It's going to involve pain. It's going to involve suffering. So the question is not whether we're going to struggle. The question is whether or not we are going to struggle in his energy or on our own. And if we choose to live for Christ, then we're going to be struggling in his energy. But if we choose to live for our own glory, we're going to be struggling in our energy. And in the long run, that is going to be a lot harder. And ultimately, that struggle isn't going to lead us anywhere worthwhile. So today... In summary, 
If the thought of agonizomying for Christ feels exhausting, I want to encourage you. Yes, there is work to be, got, to be done. Yes, it can be hard at times. But it is the easiest hard thing. Because a life ruled by sin in the long run is a lot harder than a life that's lived for Christ. And because a life lived trying to earn God's favor is a lot harder than a life lived trusting in grace. And because a life lived in our own energy is a lot harder than a life lived in his energy. I thought of two scripture verses uh, when I was thinking about how to close, and I thought they really encapsulate this, this idea of the Christian struggle being the easiest hard thing. One is when Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So in other words, whoever wants to be my disciple must struggle, right? Must put in some effort, must do some work. But he also said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So in other words, follow me, the burden is easy. It's the easiest hard thing. So the struggle is hard, but it's worth it because the burden is light. So let's keep struggling with all of his energy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that the struggle that you call us to is one that we don't have to do in our own strength. We thank you, Lord, that you call us to a life of adventure and purpose and uh, in true freedom. And Lord, I pray for each one of us here, God, that, that we would experience that, that life, that life where the struggle is meaningful, the blessed struggle, God. I pray that you would give us joy along the way. I pray that you would help us to find rest in, in the truth that we are not earning your favor, but that we've received it. And God, we just we give you all the thanks and the glory. We pray that as we continue to be your disciples, as we continue to struggle doing the easiest hard thing, that you would be our joy and our strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.